0: What is it you're giving them, exactly? It's a combination of endorphins and hormones. Keeps them from retrogressing. Retrogressing into what? Well... It isn't pretty. (laughs) Well, it certainly seems to improve their mood. Oh, that's my contribution. Add a little methamphetamine, some morphine, some shrooms and some other shit. Keeps them mellow, keeps them... Well, it keeps you coming back for more. Let's get together. I'll say it first. We all love fire. And it's time for KilmerCast. Yeah, it's time for KilmerCast. Welcome to KilmerCast. Here is your host, Francis Rizzo Third. Thanks, Bernard. Welcome to all the Val pals out there listening to a new episode of Kilmercast. I'm your host Francis Rizzo III, and I'm here to talk about the films of Val Kilmer, one of the most truly compelling American film actors of the modern era. On this episode, we'll be checking out Kilmer's volatile role as Marlon Brando's henchman in 1996's Island of Dr. Moreau. Joining us to chat about the film and Kilmer's role in it is a writer for DVD Talk, a member of the Online Film Critics Society, and a returning Kilmercast guest. It's Tyler Foster. How are you doing today, Tyler? I'm doing good. Good. What's going on out there in Seattle as we enter year two of this new unnormal? I don't think, I can't
1: think of anything that I've heard of recently happening. Um, Although some local places were trending on Twitter the other day and I didn't click on them. So maybe I missed (laughs) something, but I mean, it's been pretty, since the election, it's been pretty chill. Uh I can't remember anything crazy happening.
0: I will definitely take that over what we used to have, (laughs) (laughs) you know, here in New York, we just recently uh, passed legal recreational marijuana. And so sales are going to start in the next couple of years as someone who's from a state that has a lengthy, well, somewhat lengthy history of legal marijuana. uh, What kind of weed infused hellscape can I expect to fall upon me?
1: I mean, when it passed, I wasn't a weed user and I was worried about like running into people doing it all the time. And then that just really didn't happen. Like it happened to me once um, and not since. So, I mean, people, there's just weed stories all around. That's really the only <laughs> difference. I don't, I don't, I don't encounter people. I mean, who are just hanging around like fast food restaurants or anything. I mean, of course we're in a pandemic, but yeah, before sure. then I didn't, I didn't I didn't run into people who I could tell were high or anything like that.
0: So did the dispensaries take the place of vape shops or did they kind of combine forces?
1: I would say a little bit of combined forces. I I haven't seen, I mean, we didn't have like an overload of vape shops (laughs) and I still see the same ones, but then I've seen some that also have the dispensary in it.
0: It's funny here. Anytime a, a store go to business within a couple of months, it would open up as a vape shop. Then afterwards, it, was, it <laughs> seems like it was epidemic here. So I'm curious to see where all the, we actually have our first dispensary already here and it's a um, Sunnyside as the company and it just does medical right now until I'm sure they're <laughs> trying to get a foothold to, to get in here for when the, the recreational starts. Yeah. All the places that I can think of that have weed shops now were just empty storefronts before. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's uh, helping the economy, right? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, have you watched anything recently that's uh, stood out to you?
1: Recently? Um, I mean, the best movie that I saw last year, even though it's technically in 2019, I really loved First Cow. That was Kelly Reichardt's movie. Yeah, I, I just found that movie, even though that movie, in theory, is a little dark, mm-hmm. I just found it very warm and friendly and just, like, comfortable to, to be in that environment for two hours <laughs> I could have I could have continued to watch that movie for another two hours I just I just had a, I enjoyed it a lot
0: yeah uh, I'm, I'm glad it got some recognition thanks to the uh to the pandemic where people actually had time to watch a lot of films that were maybe that wouldn't cross their paths previously
1: I won't beg on them I saw two my first two uh films for Seattle International Film Festival were a whiff but I'm not gonna I won't I won't I won't pick on them or anything <laughs> I'm just scrolling through my uh, recent watches. Uh, oh, yeah. I watched, I did a really great double feature a little while, uh, like a few weeks ago, of Blue Collar and Norma Ray. Oh, that's um, nice. Yeah, and that was really enjoyable. I like both of those movies a lot. Yeah, oh, I think well.
0: I picked that Blue Collar from the Kino Lorber sale. Uh, so definitely a, a favorite of mine.
1: I, I moved, it wasn't. I've been planning on doing that double feature for a while because I have this group of people that I've been watching movies with during the quarantine, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I've been planning on it for a while, but then, of course, Yafet Kodo passed away, so mm. I moved it up in honor of that, and uh, yeah, it was, both of those movies are just great.
0: Yeah, I started watching, um, I don't know if you have HBO Max, but I started watching it close enough. Have you seen that? I haven't seen it yet. It's a a lot of fun. I mean, I'm a big Jason Manzucas fan, so anything with him in, I'll watch. Uh, But man, I did not expect, because I'm not a fan of, uh, I think the guy who created it does the regular show on Cartoon Network. Mm. And uh, I can't say I'm a fan, I've I've never watched it, but I might have to check it out after watching this, because he's got a really interesting sense of humor, and uh, the show is a lot of fun.
1: It feels like there's a lot of uh, animated shows in this era where... uh... I look at it, and I find the aesthetic of the animation a little unappealing, so I put it aside, but then, you know, people, people encourage, like, yeah, enough people say it's good that I come back around and watch it.
0: Um, yeah, I definitely get that feeling from a lot of Adult Swim shows that they're, they're, there's an off-putting feel to a lot of the animation.
1: Regular show is one of those shows, but I have heard good things about it, so. Mm.
0: So, before we dive into today's film, why don't we go back in time? Gather round. As we put Kilmer in context. So the Island of Dr. Moreau was released in America on August 23rd, 1996, which is a long time ago, but shouldn't really feel that way. Uh, The Democratic National Convention was about to get underway in Chicago, where Bill Clinton was nominated for a uh, re-election, while the Republican National Convention took place in San Diego, which gave us candidate Bob Dole and a second term for Clinton. So (laughs) that worked out. The San Jose Mercury News, published Gary Webb's three-part series on Reagan's CIA's role in the crack cocaine importation to fund the Contras. Huge story, which uh, I I wonder today, if that had happened under Trump, would it be a story even if people just be like, well, that's just what you do? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Former state uh, president of South Africa, F.W. de Klerk, made an official apology for crimes committed under apartheid to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in Cape Town. At that time, um, this obviously ties into some recent news. Prince Charles and Princess Diana were officially divorced around this time. So uh, the changing of the guard there in the royal family. One that really stood out to me here. Osama bin Laden declared a jihad on the United States, which then five years later would lead to 9-11. Obviously, this happened, and I guess nobody in America really paid attention to it at the time. Uh, But it it was right there in front of us, and unfortunately, we paid a big price for that. Um, Looking at the entertainment landscape, number one on the billboard chart, was the novelty dance hit Macarena by Los Del Rio. Are you a big Macarena fan, Tyler? I remember the Macarena. I don't know that I was
1: a fan, but I remember it enough.
0: I mean, obviously the, the success of the song was built by the dance that they that goes along with it, which I, I don't think you can go to, it could have gone to a wedding at the time without seeing people dance the Macarena. Uh, for me, it's the music video. Uh, do you remember the music video for Macarena? I don't think I saw the music video. So... Um, it is. It's been I've seen it described online as the most diverse music video of the 90s, because it's just a selection of varied women dancing the Macarena uh, and lip syncing to the song, because uh, a large part of the song is sung by a woman, not two guys in the band, the, the uh, Los Del Rio. The, it's actual woman who sang the song that is most of the chorus, most of the, uh, the verses, I mean. Uh, she only got paid a flat fee for the song. She never saw any royalties from it, which is kind of sad. She was just a studio singer for the the guys in Miami who remixed the song into a hit. And so the video is all these just incredibly gorgeous, varied women from different nationalities and backgrounds, just wearing the most 90s clothes of all time and uh, just singing and dancing. And it's just such a good time. I love watching that video. And I can understand why the song became such a huge hit, because it's so catchy. <laughs> Although if you listen to the words, if you understood, which I obviously didn't, uh, since I don't speak Spanish, the words are a very depressing song because it's about this woman who is cheating on her boyfriend who's in the military at a way, you know, away with the military. And she's just going around with whatever guy she can find and uh, <laughs> bragging about it, essentially, in the song. <laughs> Always makes for a great hit. Is too is adultery.
1: (laughs) Not did not think I was going to learn so much about the Macarena today.
0: I am always ready to talk about the Macarena. (laughs) (laughs) What's your next podcast? There you go, (laughs) Macarena Cast. (laughs) Well, and number two was Donna Lewis. You know Donna Lewis uh not nah, the name is familiar but not off the top of my head yeah i didn't recognize either until i listened to this song and i was like oh well this song i think played everywhere which was i love you always forever it kicks in here such a bouncy pop hit like just the you know the song is going to be hit when you hear this kind of just like almost like nursery rhyme kind of rhythm to it just flowing oh you know boom 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 it's no wonder it was a one-hit wonder, though. She really never had another hit after this. It's just the feel of this song is specific to why it was so popular. She did uh, have another song that same year called Without Love, which is also pretty big. It got into the top 50. Not a huge hit like this one, but also well. And then she did a collaboration, with Richard Marks, on the soundtrack to Anastasia, the animated film. Uh, so, But that was the last time she would uh, chart in the U.S. Um, and now she still performs but she's not a, obviously not a hit maker like she was at this one point in 1996 and then in third you know he's a regular on this chart <laughs> uh, for some reason and that's LL Cool J <laughs> <laughs> so this is LL Cool J's "Lounging." you know last time again it was a song that I never heard and this time again this song has no impact on me I, I've never I don't remember it at all even though it has this chorus which is moderately catchy uh, I was actually sung by the girl group Total, who they didn't they didn't even get a feature credit on this song, which is odd. Usually you have like with or featuring. They don't even get mentioned, even though they were their own band with their own <laughs> successes. But t- tucked in here.
1: I think I'm remembering something else, but now Total stands out to me more than this one. <laughs> I, can't, I can't say what I can't say what bell what like distant memory bell it's ringing, but
0: yeah, I don't think it's one that's going to really like, be a core memory to most people <laughs> at the end total. But for me, the, the, the reason this one stands out is the music video, which has this bizarre scene of a little Cool J pouring chocolate syrup on a woman sitting in front on a car in the middle of the street in broad daylight, which is, I guess, a thing you do. <laughs> <laughs> <clears throat> you know, I find it odd. You look at these three songs, you know, of varying pop quality, but these were the top songs. At the same time, in the top 10, you also had, you know, Give Me One Reason by Tracy Chapman. You had You Ought to Know by Alanis Morissette, and you had Who Will Save Your Soul by Jewel. And yet these three songs are the ones that were the top of the charts, and, the, and these other <laughs> songs are behind them. Sometimes the charts make no sense. So jumping over to the TV, in the era before reality television, which was a great time, uh, NBC held two of the top five spots with Seinfeld at number one and Friends at number five, while ABC was represented three times in the top 10 with 2020, Home Improvement, and surprisingly, Grace Under Fire, which I never realized was a hit at the time it was out i always thought it was just one of those other shows that they had with a comedian in it um and that just kind of went on for a couple of seasons but apparently people like to watch grace under fire which i'm very surprised because it wasn't in my head it wasn't a very funny show because i believe she was like an alcoholic it was kind of maybe it was a prototype uh, prototype for the show mom with uh alice and janney you know, may, uh, i think alice i think that show is a little funnier though because alice and janney and uh anna faris are quite hilarious
1: <laughs> i i can't i have not seen grace under fire so
0: I don't think a lot of people have. I, to be honest, I don't think it's big in syndication or anything like that.
1: Yeah, and I don't, it's not a show that I hear people talking about, really.
0: No, you hear about all these reboots of other shows, and nobody's ever brought up Grace Under Fire. <laughs> Probably because it's very specific to her as a performer. And I don't think she, I th- she's basically banished from, from uh, popular culture.
1: Mm.
0: Uh, CBS placed the most shows in the top 10, though, uh, led by Walker, Texas Ranger. The 50th anniversary of Candid Camera. 60 Minutes, and The Nanny. Did you ever watch Candid Camera?
1: Uh, I think I've seen, I I don't know if I saw an episode of Candid Camera, but I'm pretty sure I saw like a special or something.
0: Yeah, that's what this was on, the 50th anniversary special. You know, really um, the the pioneer for these prank shows that now we have, uh, although obviously on a very much more relaxed version of uh, the prank. I I remember as a kid, I used to watch... um, on the playboy channel, they had a, uh, a playboy, uh, candid camera version. Um, and it was like, they would, you know, surprise people with naked women and stuff like that. And that was the whole prank it was just, Oh, she's naked. And it's like, uh, I used to like, you know, two in the morning, you'd watch it on uh, like semi scrambled TV. And, like, and it's like, Oh, yeah, you know, like, wow, that's fantastic. I don't think I've ever seen anything like released or anything like that, a home video version of that. I think that's yeah. one of those things they just tuck away and say, yeah, that really just didn't happen. <laughs> So for as much as Moreau is considered a failure, and yes, it is considered a failure because of everything that went around it, it didn't actually fare too poorly at the box office. It didn't open at number one um, because it fell behind the second week of the pop culture phenomenon known as Tin Cup. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't understand that at all. I mean, Tin Cup, I guess it's a fine Kevin Costner film, but really (laughs) two weeks at number one, that doesn't make any sense to me. I was never a huge fan of uh, Bull Durham. I like it, but I don't
1: love it. So I haven't seen Tin Cup yet, but uh, yeah. it, is, it is on my list. Maybe, maybe it's just that the um, golf movie audiences were just starved for content.
0: Perhaps. I mean, I, I know I, when I watched it, I was like, really? <laughs> this is a big one? Um, however, uh, it did outpace the other big debut that week, which was a very Brady sequel. Um, are you a fan of the Brady films? I really liked the first one and I really did not like the second one. Well, why didn't you like the second one versus the first one? I mean, yeah, I agree. The first one is fantastic. It's amazing. I just felt like the
1: comedic alchemy of the second one was a little bit
0: off. It didn't have the same snap or wit that the first one had for Mm. me. Yeah. The second one, I think, now it's been a little while since I've watched it last, but I remember it being a little more um, cheeky about what it was doing with the characters. Like, the other one was it, it took these characters and put them out of time. The second one was like winking at, at you the whole time with it. Because the second one, didn't the second one have more of the um, romantic relationship between the family members at one point?
1: I don't remember. I just remember it has a whole like kidnapping plot almost, right? Mm. Where uh, uh, the mom gets taken. That's, that's vaguely what I remember. <laughs> and because uh, it's um, Chris Matheson, I think. Mm-hmm. Yep. Animal House. He's the villain. And I, yeah, I just, I don't know. I, I, it was not a movie that I enjoyed. I really, I look forward to it after liking the first one. Oh, yeah, I absolutely. The first one a couple of years ago. Um, but uh, that one was not for me. Mm.
0: <laughs> so the rest of the chart, you had the top three followed by uh, A Time to Kill, a solid film. Uh, Jack, uh, which uh, Robin Williams and the ninth week of Independence Day right there. Mm. And then you had The Fan uh, with uh, Wesley Snipes. Uh, you had Emma And then two new releases finished out the top 10. At number nine is one I don't think I've ever heard of in my life. The film is called Solo. Now, obviously, this isn't the Star Wars Solo. It's another film. Do you know the film Solo? I do know the film Solo because every time when the the
1: new one, the Star Wars one was coming out, everybody made jokes about the other one. So that's the only (laughs) reason I know
0: about it. I believe it has Mario (laughs) Van Peebles in it. Correct. It's Mario Van Peebles and directed by Norberto Barba. Somebody who really didn't have a big career in uh, film, but definitely had a very solid television uh, career. He did Preacher and Law and Order and just tons of other series. Uh, and yes, Marvin Peoples as an android killing weapon that was designed by the military and utilized to enter into Latin American wars to destroy the rebels. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> like, it, it seems so of the time, really, for sure. Almost like and it should so- have been of the 80s, though.
1: I think it was, I think for the when the Star Wars movie was and the title was announced, it was just
0: a lot of people going, "Not my solo!" And then a picture of the <laughs> DVD. Cover. Well, apparently it did well enough to be at number nine, but forgotten nowadays, I think, except for when somebody makes a film named Solo. <laughs> and then the number ten was the Edward Burns film, She's the One, which is pretty impressive uh, considering it only opened in 459 theaters, whereas Solo opened in 1,230 theaters and earned only $80,000 more than She's the One. So obviously there are a lot of fans out there of Edward Burns who found their way to those limited theaters where the film was playing. I never
1: saw She's the One, and I had, I bought, they put out the Brothers McMullen, that's mm-hmm. one of those other movies, on yep. a signature series Blu-ray, and I had it
0: for a while, but I I guess I just didn't watch it, so. Yeah, not, I, I appreciate Edward Burns' craft, but it's not something where I'm like, I really need to watch an Ed Burns film. <laughs> 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 also opening that week, although outside the top 10, was the comedy Carpool uh, with David Paymer. I don't know if you remember Carpool or if you've ever seen that.
1: I think I, I actually wanted to see it at the time, but I didn't. And then I, I still have not. Isn't it directed by somebody of note? It might Maybe?
0: be. I, I mainly know it for being having David Paymer and uh, Tom Arnold. Mm-hmm. <laughs> is in the cast and it's a it's kind of a crazy film like a lot of weird scenes that don't go together and just a, a very bizarre situation and but anything with David Pamer I'm pretty much down for
1: yes it is directed by Arthur
0: Hiller the director of the in-laws that's amazing
1: and uh, see <laughs> no evil hear no evil and low story
0: yeah carpool seems to be a step down from all those <laughs> <laughs> Also uh, opening at that time were a couple of blockbuster video favorites, Foxfire with Angelina Jolie and Freeway with Kiefer Sutherland and Reese Witherspoon. I remember Freeway so much from, I, I, I must've seen that film on shelves in blockbuster and video stores so often. I, I, I've i never watched it.
1: <laughs> I have watched it and I just don't really remember it. I think I liked it at the time. Um, it is sort of an interesting like Little Red Riding Hood riff, hmm. um, where he's the wolf and she's the little, little Red Riding Hood. But I need to watch it again. I mean, uh, people seem, it has a cult following. Definitely. And then uh, Foxfire, I've actually heard a lot about recently because uh, I have, it's a film directed by a woman. And I have this, uh, you know, I, every year I do the 52 Films by Women Pledge. So that's one of the ones that's been on my list for a while. And mm-hmm. it seems to have a pretty positive reputation. Fox
0: yeah, definitely. Foxfire and Freeway definitely carried some fans out of the uh, their limited appearance because Freeway only appeared in six theaters when it was released. <laughs> <laughs> I think it really built its audience on video at uh, that you know in the '90s heyday of DVD. Uh, you put Reese with a spoon on the cover. I think she's wearing a, a midriff shirt and, on the cover of the of the box, so that's going to sell a few copies
1: <laughs> for a movie that only opened in six theaters. I mean, they eventually made a sequel freeway Two: the confessions of a trick baby starring natasha <laughs> leone
0: is that legitimately a sequel or is it one of those like uh yeah they just stole the title <laughs> it might be I, I don't really
1: know i mean i just know that it's called freeway two and it has natasha leone in it i but, have not yeah. seen that one
0: that series is one is uh two for two when it comes to great stars <laughs> yeah <laughs> well we're gonna take a little break and then we'll be right back to talk about the island of dr moreau <music> Welcome back to KilmerCast. Let's get into this film. So The Island of Dr. Moreau was adapted from the novel by H.G. Wells, one of the pioneers of science fiction. This work has been adapted actually eight times, uh, including the classic Charles Lawton film, Island of Souls on Criterion available. And the last classic 1977 version with Burt Lancaster, which is OK, but not, no great shakes. Uh, the version we're talking about today, though, was written by Richard Stanley and Ron Hutchinson. So Stanley, he wrote and directed a few early 90s cult classics, uh, some genre films, Hardware and Dust Devil, which gained, gained some um, you know, popularity for their special effects and for their interesting uh, style. And he had a bit of a comeback in 2019 by teaming up with Nick Cage on the H.P. Lovecraft adaptation Color Out of Space. But we'll talk a bit more about him in a moment because there's a lot to discuss about Richard Stanley. Uh, <laughs> let's talk a bit about Ron Hutchinson. So Ron Hutchinson was brought in to rewrite this script by uh, the the new director. We're talking about that as well. And his background is actually in British television, although his best known work is the well-received HBO film, The Josephine Baker Story. I don't know if you ever saw it, but uh, with Lynn Whitfield. It was a, a hot film when it came out, like people were really into it. And it's, it's quite well done. Nice, really nice biopic of uh, Justin Baker really introduced it to a new generation. Beyond that though, not much of, a, of a, a impact from Ron Hutchinson's work. He's kind of just like a, you know, a worker, you know, he just, he makes films and makes films, but nothing that really stands out. Behind the camera though, uh, John Frankenheimer was the director of Dr. Moreau, but obviously that wasn't the case the whole time because Before that, the aforementioned Richard Stanley was a director. He had put together this film for years as a passion project. And then just a few days into the job as director, he was removed from the film because there was a ton of problems, really, Um, from the location to the cast to the crew. A lot went wrong. and. You know, it's hard to say that it was his fault, but he certainly didn't help it. You know, it definitely, he had a very odd personality, clashed with some people. There's an entire documentary. Uh, I'm a, I, should, I shouldn't say I am a, it's hard to, you know, there's a lot to say here that, um, <laughs> you know, because there's a documentary called Lost Souls, which covers the whole production of the film uh, and what went on behind the scenes and all the madness that went into this film. Now, at the time the film came out, the documentary, lost souls i mean stanley was a bit of a sympathetic character wouldn't you say tyler yeah he hadn't made a
1: movie in decades and um he had become a recluse in the mountains and you know because of the cult you know love for his first two movies um and everybody having of having an awareness of what happened to him on uh island dr Moreau. i mean there was a real sense that he had been wronged by hollywood and you know Packed up his bags and left.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, you watch this documentary and I've watched it many times because it's a really fascinating story. And you start saying like, oh, this poor guy, you know, things didn't work out for him. He got his passion project ripped away from him. And that's changed now because yeah. there's a lot of recent accusations from his um, his longtime partner who accused him of tremendous cruelty and assault and abuse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously we it's a... You know, there's something of a he said, she said, although there are other witnesses who say they saw they saw some of this going on. And so, like, it's rather hard to side with somebody who could be possibly capable of such just horrific brutality that's been described.
1: Yeah. She, she put up a personal blog post just detailing it in first person. And uh, you, within the first paragraph, it's like really intense.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's not for the weak of heart uh, to read this. And so it gets really hard to, you know, I mean, Lost Souls still stands out because a lot of the, the, the stuff that goes on in Lost Souls does actually not involve him. <laughs> he, uh, he's the beginning of the story. He's the end of the story. He's a constant presence in the story. But um, a lot of the stories are being told by people who are on the set, the actors and the, and the cast. And so you kind of can divorce him from Lost Souls and enjoy it as a uh, interesting story of this just tortured production. But man, having him involved with it makes it less enjoyable in a, in a big way. Yeah. Uh,
1: and then because I remember he talks about how he's even like distantly related to somebody and somebody relevant to the story. Mm. Oh, he's just actually he was distantly related to the guy who inspired Colonel Kurtz. That's how he because um, he uh, he pitched the studio on directing and they went behind his back and they tried to hire Roman Polanski, which... <laughs> yeah,
0: another another figure who is not... really good choices they're making
1: <laughs> yeah they tried, they went behind his back and offered it to roman polanski um and so he he had a meeting with brando because brando was already interested and um he won brando over so brando used his leverage to make sure stanley got the chance to direct mm. for a short while <laughs> yeah for a short while and then and we... uh, well you can go ahead
0: yeah and uh he though he did stick around the film, even though he wasn't directing it, because uh there's I mean, yeah. there's several people in the film that say this happened, that he had the makeup people dress him as an extra, and he mm-hmm. was in the film as an extra without people knowing about it, which mm-hmm. is just madness. I mean, if you question if you wonder about his mental state, that really said a lot about it, that he was willing <laughs> to be under all this makeup because the one guy in the documentary says that there's for some reason this one extra who never took his makeup off. And you know, you're you sweating and you're, you're overheating, but this guy would never take his makeup off because it was Richard Stanley and he was trying to keep his identity hidden because the people were, who, run, who were running the film, the producers and everything, were really nervous that Stanley was going to sabotage the film. And uh, he didn't really have to because the film was doomed from the start, really.
1: <laughs> I mean, not to give him too much credit, it does, it does seem like he never had any... Like he just, I, I don't know what he, if, if he had a goal in mind, but it does sound like he had no plans to sabotage the movie. No. Um, he just came back for the hell of it because he was still in, in Australia. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, and he had nothing better to do. <laughs> he <was in> contact. <laughs> I, I, my recollection of what I read is that he just happened to stumble upon a bunch of the extras who were hanging out in the woods yeah. that near the place where he, uh, went off after he was fired um, and he was just you know sort of chilling out and um, he ran into them and then he must have gotten into his head that it would be funny to just sneak back onto the set and be part of the movie.
0: And I'm sure he kind of enjoyed uh, you know some of the shot and front of watching it all go badly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When he was off uh, John Frankenheimer took over and this is kind of towards the end of Frankenheimer's career which was a remarkable career as a filmmaker, although oddly, like you, you look at his you know, IMDb, his filmography. After starting out in television, he, his run in the 60s was amazing. I don't know how many people can match the kind of run he had there. He had Birdman of Alcatraz, The Manchurian Candidate, Seven Days in May, Seconds and Grand Prix all in one decade. That's mm-hmm. an incredible run. And then he followed it up in the 70s with Iceman Cometh and Black Sunday. But then he kind of just like was doing just like okay films. He didn't, he never could match the heights of his sixties career. Yes. He did have a really nice, not his final film. His final film was reindeer games, which is okay. I mean, it's, it's not bad, uh, but it's, it's, it's not great either, but he also had in there the Robert De Niro film Ronin, which yeah. is an excellent action film and really features one of the just all time great car chases in it. And for, the, for being towards the real end of his career was a heck of a, a send-off for him, I, I have to say.
1: Yeah, I also, I personally go to bad for um, his French Connection sequel, which is- Oh, French uh, Connection 2, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are things about it that I think are worthy of criticism in a sequel, especially a mo- to a movie that has an intentionally ambiguous ending. Mm-hmm. Um, so just the very nature of a sequel existing, there are, there are elements to it that- feel corny that can't be avoided but gene hackman mm-hmm. came back um yeah. he's really he's really great in it playing sort of a he's he, he sees into like a recovering alcoholic thing and then the villains get him addicted to heroin briefly mm-hmm. so he has to kick the habit and stuff and um there's a really clever subversion of the original's great chase where gene hackman is on foot the whole time so i like the french connection too it was funny i i once i interviewed William Friedkin, and he had talked the night before at a panel about never seeing sequels to his movies, so he's never seen any <laughs> exorcist sequels, and he also talked about how much he loved John Frankenheimer. And <laughs> the most interesting thing he told me in the interview was that he never saw French Connection to, even though he loved Frankenheimer, and he wrote him a four-page letter begging him not to make the movie. Wow,
0: uh, <laughs> and Frankenheimer did not listen. Yeah, he went ahead with it anyway. <laughs> Well, unfortunately, uh, John Frankenheimer passed away in 2002 at the age of 72 after his final project, which was a short film promoting BMW with Clive Owen. He is All part right. of that uh, The Driver series. Again, you know, car chases. So, you know, he's playing to his strengths even to the end. So starting this film off, we have this New Line Cinema logo. I I feel so good when I see the New Line Cinema logo. I don't know how you feel about that that studio, but... God, I, I mean, I have so many fond memories of seeing that New Line Cinema logo in front of so many films.
1: I mean, certainly the, it's the house that Freddie built. So I'm a big fan of all the Nightmare movies. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Um, and then Lord of the Rings is probably most people's one, number one or number two. And then of course there was, uh, they had a little bit of extra notoriety when they did a bunch of those Jim Carrey movies, mm-hmm. like uh, they did Dumb and Dumber and the Mask that were huge.
0: Um, so yeah, I have, I have fondness for a new Line cinema. So we start, follow that up with these pretty dramatic opening credits, which, uh, are really just wild with lots of like eyes and lightning and, and biological cells and some chaotic, the, the chaotic lettering is just ridiculous in my opinion, but Hey, you know, it goes along with the feel. These were done by Kyle Cooper, who is just a top designer of, of credits. He's the one who actually did seven. So you can feel a lot of that, like, kind of like DNA, from seven into this in the, in these letters and everything inside of this one. He's gone on to do tons of titles uh, after this, but it really um, just like, it, it gets the film off to an odd start because it's so energetic. And then the film just goes to dead silence in the, in the, uh, in the ocean.
1: <laughs> one thing that is kind of weird. I mean, I guess I'm sure they wouldn't have wanted to spend money on it, but you would, you would almost think the movie would open with the plane crash that he's describing instead right? of the aftermath.
0: Yeah. I mean, I really struggled with the scene because it opens up in the Java sea and we have a life raft where we have these three guys on the life raft. Two of them are military men. And then this other guy who is played by David Doulas, that's uh, Douglas and David Doulas, you know, I think probably his most respected work maybe is naked. If I yeah. had to say Michael Mike, Mike Lee's naked, but he's probably best known maybe for Harry Potter at this point, because yeah. having been in the Harry Potter franchise, just a top-notch actor, and then maybe, maybe, maybe Wonder
1: Woman a little bit too.
0: Yeah, now he's probably his DC work also, as Ares and Justice League, and you know he's probably gained a little, um, you know, recognition from them as well now. So they're in this life raft, and a fight breaks out between the two military guys, and in the end, they both end up dead, and David Doolittle is all alone in this life raft. One uh, at the other one's hands, and the other one at David Doolittle's hands because he hits him with a paddle and knocks him into the water. Um, Maybe we should talk about right now the fact that there are two cuts to this film mm-hmm. because this is a big part of that is this scene actually uh, I, because the violence I, in this film.
1: I watched the unrated cut. I don't know which cut you watched.
0: I also watched the unrated cut. I mean, why would I bother with the, <laughs> the theatrical <laughs> PG <PG-13> 13 one? <laughs> the, man, the main
1: thing is that the, the PG 13 one is seems to be the only one available online. So uh, if you were Watching it digitally, then that would be your only option. But uh, I watched it on Blu-ray, which actually Warner Brothers, Warner Brothers is a pretty solid studio with when it comes to transfers. And their transfer of Island of Dr. Morrow, you wouldn't know it was a bad movie because it's like it looks it looked really good.
0: Yeah. I thought it was interesting that some basically with this whole director's cut, it's all about violence, really. Yeah. The vast majority of the cuts are to hide things that happen that would be upsetting to younger viewers perhaps mm-hmm. um, limbs and blood and all that stuff. I don't know. I mean, I think you could have got away with this in a PG 13 film. There's nothing that dramatic about the unrated cut that you couldn't show. I think.
1: Uh, I mean, there's the, you know, I don't know if we want to jump ahead, but there is Brando's death. I think that's probably the most graphic thing where they you
0: see yeah. his arm being pulled off even. Yes. Uh. But even at that, it's, it's not that, I mean, one cut maybe that you'd, you'd probably be able to have to make to just cut off a limb being removed. Um, I mean, but otherwise, it's, it's relatively tame, even as an unrated cut. It is, yeah. I, I that's If you're looking at it from that angle, yeah, that's true. That it
1: is, uh, it doesn't feel like too extreme.
0: Yeah, it's not a gory film. <laughs> if anything, it's just creepy from some of the creature effects.
1: <laughs> of course, I also think that um, the... Uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, the Overton window of what constitutes the PG-13 has definitely been sliding over mm-hmm. time. I think, because uh, I remember, I feel like there was a period where if you put blood in it, then you were going to get an R rating. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is there is plenty of blood in the PG-13 or this unrated version of Dr. Moreau. This is true. It is, it is pretty tame overall.
0: Mm-hmm. So I have to ask. This scene where Thulis is now alone in this life raft—was it necessary in any way?
1: Uh, I mean, it's like if you're not going to show the plane crash, there's a question of how how does he how does he get there? I don't know that this this scene was the way to do it in terms of knowing that this was a movie that had had trouble behind the scenes. Just the fact that it opened with him narrating was like that feels like a that feels like a patch covered something out there (laughs) so uh i mean it's it's not a good scene but it's also like i don't know how else to open it if he's going to run into this the our val kilmer character coincidentally
0: i mean you do end the film with a voiceover so and if you open with a voiceover he can just explain day whatever in this raft and then here comes a boat (laughs) (laughs) that's true I mean, it really, because I, I didn't know from this point, I was like, okay, well, is he a badass maybe? Like that he can fight for himself? Because at no point in the film does he prove that <laughs> outside of the scene where he defends his, his life on this boat. Uh, so it doesn't set a tone for the character, that's for sure.
1: Well, I'm looking at it from a, from a, why is it in the movie perspective? The first thing that comes to mind is that it's a studio note. That it's like movie needs to open with an action beat. Mm. Uh, it's not a very good action beat. Doesn't tell you anything about the characters, no. but uh, Frankenheimer delivered an action beat.
0: Somebody <laughs> said, start it this way. And he said, okay. You got it, boss. <laughs> Give me my paycheck. Mm-hmm. So a boat shows up and finds Douglas floating in the ocean. And now we meet Val Kilmer, who plays uh, Montgomery. If you never saw a film before with Val Kilmer in it and you laid your eyes on him in this film, you know instantly he's a movie star. Like he just has that presence right off the bat where this guy is interesting and unusual. (laughs) I mean, he's got those glasses on, he's setting up the drugs for, for Douglas. He said, him, are you a doctor? No, I'm more of a vet.
1: (laughs) For a movie that uh, is notorious for how much um, his onset behavior had an effect on the production and how, like, how, it was to get the movie made. I was not expecting him to give such a weird... Like, he's like... He is giving a very strange and... Uh... I don't know if I would call it committed, but it feels like he has some vision for this character mm-hmm. that I wasn't expecting.
0: No. I mean, he brought a bit of Jim Morrison to the role in a way, uh, <laughs> you know, because there is a lot of drug use involved in this film. And we'll learn, see later a bit of a, a shift of character when he uh, decides to uh, embody Brando, mm-hmm. which is a fun moment. Uh, but he definitely, uh, he just makes an impact. The second he gets on the screen and you're like, okay, what's we want to follow this guy. And, You see it right off the bat because then uh, we find out Douglas is from the UN and they're going to try to get him somewhere for safety. Unfortunately, plans change. There's something wrong with the people on the boat, supposedly, and they end up at Dr. Murrow's Island. And so Montgomery takes him with him and takes him to a rabbit cage and gets a rabbit out of the cage and tells him to kiss it and then snaps (laughs) its neck right in front of (laughs) Douglas. And you're like, wait, what? (laughs) Because honestly at this point if you know this is 1996 You're t- you've you got Batman this is Batman in your film and he just snapped a rabbit's neck what is happening
1: <laughs> it's also like I mean this uh, a good thing to point out at this point is originally when they were making the movie Val Kilmer was cast as the David Thewlis character mm-hmm. and then his story is that he found out that he was being served divorce papers and he decided he just didn't want to commit to as much of the movie as he had before. Mm-hmm. So they first had Bruce Willis playing the David Thewlis character, right? Or they, maybe they had David Bruce Willis playing the um, character that Kilmer plays now. But in any case, eventually Bruce Willis left and they only had Val. Yep. And then Val was going to play the hero and then the divorce paper thing. So he ended up switching roles. Mm-hmm. And it really does feel like i mean if you're talking about movie star charisma and how interesting he is it does make a lot i don't know if it would fix the movie but it does make a lot of sense to imagine him playing the the stranded hero who gets picked up and especially it makes sense you can really picture david thewis playing the weirdo
0: oh yeah <laughs> and you can also see like the connection like you would have kilmer and and Forza balk later together you know um he would definitely change he would change the film entirely if they switch roles and would he be more successful? Maybe. I mean, if he had played that role, I mean, it's just interesting to see the very weak Thulis in this role. He, he, things happen to Thulis more often than not, instead of him being an active participant in things. And, uh, I can't see Kilmer doing that. That's for sure.
1: <laughs> right.
0: You might actually know
1: what is going on inside Douglas's head more consistently. Mm. If, uh, Somebody other than Thulis was playing it. Not that he's a bad actor or anything, but and of course they were getting rewrites every day. But it, he, you know, his character is really confusing. Basically, mm-hmm. he has no real point of view. It just varies from scene to scene. It's very, and it throws the whole movie out of
0: whack. Oh, absolutely. And when you put that up against two powerhouses like Brando and and Kilmer, you're not going to win. I'm sorry, you're never going to overcome that power, right, in, that, in a yeah. film like this. Well, as this is all happening, we get this first idea that something is wrong on this island because we get this POV shot from the bushes uh, and something is watching them. And so immediately, we're like, OK, well, there's our you know, <laughs> there's our problem on this island. There's something hunting our yeah. our, our our hero here. And so we got to keep an eye out for what's going to happen there, especially when Montgomery takes Douglas to the main house where they're all staying in this nice resort, really nice resort in this island and tells him he has to stay in the main house. Why? Well, the owners are afraid of lawsuits. Nice cover story. I mean, <laughs> that works. I mean, would you really question that? I don't know, maybe. Yeah, you know, but it, it it works. However, Douglas decides he's going to explore a bit. And he finds Dr. Moreau's Nobel Prize and then meets Frizzabal, who plays Aisa. And she's dancing and he's watching her until he notices, and she gets totally scared and runs. And this is the first point where we realize this film has no ability to be subtle at all. <laughs> because <laughs> Montgomery comes out. All Val Kilmer, and he's wearing a sarong, which is you know an interesting choice for this this character. Uh, but I feel it's definitely Kilmer's choice to put a flower in his hair and wear a sarong. And he comes up to you know Thulis and says, "Oh, she's a pussy cat." <laughs> and I'm like, "Come on, <laughs> like who didn't know what was coming when you you call Aisa a pussycat? cat?" I mean, this is so obvious that she is one of these creatures, and they didn't even try to hide it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: it's kind of like kind of lame i would have liked that to be held back a little bit
1: <laughs> I, I again uh my real thought on uh for the is just like kilmer and brando and even thewlis it's like i was mostly just impressed that none of these people really seemed like even though there was all this strife going on behind the scenes none of them felt particularly checked out like they they no. they give good performances in the movie. They they're certainly committed to making what they can out of what they've got.
0: Yeah, you'd have a hard time finding somebody in this film who's sleepwalking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Everybody seems like they want to do something with their character. It depends what kind of character they have, unfortunately. <laughs> that yeah. that that decides how successful they are at that process. So Montgomery takes, you know, after you know, talking about it, AISA, takes him to his room and then locks him in. And so we're like, uh oh. <laughs> this is a problem he's getting locked in however douglas is resourceful and he unlocks his room and goes exploring and now the film really kind of kicks into gear as a sci-fi freak out because he finds cages of animals and a surgical team i mean did you expect what you what was what was going to be on that table (laughs) what was most interesting to me is that
1: I wasn't expecting it when I was watching the movie, but the moment it showed up in the movie, I was like, wow, that is almost shot for shot one of the storyboards they that's in the Lost Soul documentary. Oh, absolutely. I really I remembered that image. And I when I'm watching the Lost Soul documentary, I feel like the impression that I'm putting that storyboard in the movie gave me was that this is not something that got realized, but it's there on the screen. It's pretty much exactly the way I remember it, which is really... It was, was surprising to me because i i don't really know what i was expecting out of this movie but i certainly expected it to be more uh, like like that it wouldn't have so much strange stuff in it like i yeah. i thought more of its spirit was going to be sapped out of it but it's it, it, the movie for all its flaws certainly puts a lot of wild imagery into it
0: Oh, yeah, I mean, what we have on this table is a hybrid human animal giving birth, and it is intense. And this is one of the Stan Winston creations, and it is—I mean, it's it's top-notch special effects work here. It's disturbing.
1: Probably so uh, I read an IMDb trivia piece that said um, the creature was designed to be dead, and then on the la- near the last second, Frankenheimer said, "I want it to be alive while it's giving birth." So they had to add a bunch of rigs to the effect on the spot to make it move. And they managed to do that inside like an hour or something.
0: That's amazing. I mean, it really looks good on screen and when it gives birth and he sees, and uh, Thibault sees the baby and says, Oh my God, I buy it. You know, it's a stupid thing to do in that moment to say anything because you're going to be caught. But yeah, I think I might gasp (laughs) if I saw what was happening on that table. And so the doctor takes his mask down and he's also a hybrid creature. Mm -hmm. And, they start uh, running and Thulis is running away from him. You've got creatures in tuxedos, which I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, that's a really <laughs> weird little detail to have these creatures in tuxedos. kind of, you know, a very colonial kind of, you know, um, feel for this film. To And we'll talk a bit more about the themes that are around the edges of this film because it doesn't, It it really doesn't hit them head on, but there's a lot of little themes around the edges that you go, oh, okay, I think I think that's what they're touching on here. Uh, But they're maybe not going head on because it's not that kind of film. It's really a a sci fi action ish film or horror film, if you want to say that. Uh, So he runs away from the creatures and he's rescued by, first Aisa. And Mm -hmm. she tries to get him on the boat, but they're intercepted by the tuxedo squad and he can't get away. They do uh, see more creatures, and then they finally get introduced by to a Sassamon, who is the uh, he's a primate kind of creature, and they take him to a village of creatures just like them. There's a ton of these creatures in this village, and he gets to meet the sayer of the law. Uh, one one key thing
1: when they're running when they're running away, and it's just Thulus and Aisa they're trying to escape.
0: Uh, one key thing that they find is they find another dead rabbit. That's true. Yes, uh, there is a dead rabbit in the in the forest. And that's going to come up in a little bit uh, because, as I said, we meet the Sayer of the Law. So the Sayer of the Law, played by the great Ron Perlman, is the person who runs basically the creatures from the creature side of things. He's the person who lays down the law, which we'll find out where the law comes from. But he's the one who is kind of a combination preacher, prophet. He's the religious leader, essentially, of the group from their side. Uh, He's, I guess you could call him like a liaison between the doctors and the creatures in a way because they hand him the law and he hands it down to them. And that's where some of that theme of religion comes in in this film because uh, religion, though, it's not explicitly stated except for the idea that they call Marlon Brando father and you have all that, you know, Judeo-Christian father and iconography like that. And also the the ones on Maling is a true believer of uh, religion. He actually reads the Bible in the, in the film. So you get this idea that Religion is controlling these people, which I think is an interesting little theme to touch on that the uh, the white colonials are using religion to control you know so-called natives because they've been invented there at this at this uh, island to control them through religion, which I think is an interesting little touch there.
1: It's definitely uh, it's even reinforced by the fact that the things that Ron Perlman was preaching about are not really. They're not broad enough to be a faith. They're basically just morality, mm-hmm. you know, how how they should act and behave. So the the idea of how religion works has even been boiled down to its essence.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah, just the rules. Or, yeah, just the rules.
0: <laughs> well, they're trying to help out Douglas and Aissa, but unfortunately, the father has come to the village. <laughs> so we've now had decades of seeing this image of Marlon Brando from this film – covered in white uh, makeup with his, you know, his uh, like flowing white robes and everything. But what did you think the first time you saw this vision of Marlon Brando like this?
1: Honestly, I mean, before I actually sat down and watched the whole movie, I thought that was just how his character looked. I had no idea that that was just sunscreen. Um, That's just what he is in this movie. And I just thought that that was strange, but um, it turns out he's playing a fairly, I mean, on some level, a fairly normal person. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's just like he has a sun allergy. So when he goes out, he takes himself from head to toe in this white makeup or this white sunscreen so he doesn't get burned. <laughs> and of course, he has his uh, tiny uh, sidekick with him, which was uh, notoriously parodied
0: in uh, Austin Powers 2 Mini-Me. Yes, uh, Nelson De La Rosa who played M- Miguel. Uh, what uh, a sight. I mean, like there's a line in this film when uh, Thulis meets <laughs> meets the family and he's very upset about this whole hybrid thing. And he says, look at these people. Look at him. <laughs> and he's so freaked out by this guy who and that's like just some makeup on the world's smallest person. That that is not a makeup effect. It's not a you know, he just has some makeup on, but he is that small. And it is. I mean, it's him, but it is shocking to see, Uh, Mm -hmm. especially when you put him next to Brando because you have Brando, who is a very large man next Mm -hmm. to the world's smallest man. And I love in Lost Souls, the stories of Nelson De La Rosa, who apparently his ego is inflated by Brando, who loved him. (laughs) And he would go around and just be a jerk to everybody. I had forgotten about that, but uh, you bring it up has brought it back. (laughs) <laughs> apparently he was like you know sexually harassing the women on set he was just being a jerk to all the guys it's like because brando loved him so much he wanted him to be a star in the film <laughs> and like brando got what he wanted because he was the star of the show really
1: <laughs> there may also be some element of like what are you going to do like
0: get mad at me <laughs> <laughs> well he meets the family you now duels meets uh the family and there's a great scene, uh, and like you said, parodied by Austin Powers of Brando playing the piano. And then on top of the piano is a smaller piano where Nelson De La Rose is playing the piano. Like you said, the, this moment does not feel like it belongs in a studio film. This is an independent film like this. Certainly,
1: I can't think of, I mean, other than the thing that was intentionally making reference to it, I can't think of anything remotely like it it is very you know uh again as i will have said and will say you know you there's a lot of things you can say about the quality of the film overall but it certainly puts some images on screen that you can't that you just have no counterpart they're just so weird and unique and uh certainly that's worth something
0: yeah definitely i mean you could do this in a very boring way. Uh, this whole story, and that was not what happened here in this film. It mm-hmm. went for it, and you know. And we'll talk a bit later about you know how I think the impact of having a Brando and a Kilmer, especially on the set, will help you try to go for it because they w- they'll do anything basically.
1: When I was watching the uh, piano scene, the first thing that came to mind was Todd Browning's movie Freaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Another another movie that showcases a lot of people who had real disabilities mm-hmm. um, in a way that is just interesting and not, not. I mean, uh, the movie never judges that character.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I, I don't know that I would go so far as to com- say that it is as interested in his humanity as Freaks is, because he has no lines. Um, he's sort of a character that follows Brando's character around, but um, mm-hmm. certainly... Even even the idea of making those connecting those dots, you know, I don't know that you would have been expecting that in a major studio blockbuster from nineteen ninety six.
0: Definitely not. And <laughs> I'm pretty sure New Line didn't expect it. <laughs> well, they decide they uh, Brando brings them back to his home and they have dinner. And I I couldn't quite understand why the fa- like because they keep he keeps referring to the creatures as family but they all act as servants to him.
1: Mm-hmm. And I, I
0: was like, that's an interesting like, dynamic there because why, I mean, Aisa is the only one who isn't a servant uh, because prob- I assume that's partially because she doesn't look like the rest of them. And so then you get into the ideas of racism in this film and where if you look one way, if you look like the people who are in charge, you get treated one way. If you don't look like them, you get treated a different way. And I mean, that would be
1: something to, you know, if the movie was more interested in playing those themes out, I mean, I can certainly see the setup in which the Brando character doesn't consciously realize he's doing that. I mean, Aisa represents the a blend of human and animal genetics that is closer to what his goal is. Mm. So, if he treats her differently, it's because he he might be viewing it through the lens of his work. He's not necessarily trying to other these uh creatures who look different because he does he does certainly in his own mind have a lot of compassion for all of them. Mm. But uh yeah
0: it's just weird to get the ones to have to dress up in tuxedos and serve them dinner and all that yeah (laughs) it's like um what (laughs) you really have an
1: additional that's the layer that might have been exploited a little more in a in a film that
0: was more interested in you know going into those details those themes. yeah uh so morrow tells douglas of his work and how he wants to perfect humanity at that point they bring up part of the meal for Val Kilmer's character, which is the rabbit that you mentioned before. Uh, Well, not, well, you mentioned a dead rabbit. He killed a rabbit for dinner. And so there's been a bunch of these killings. And then they find out that one of the creatures killed a rabbit out in the the jungle. And they Mm -hmm. find out it was, uh, and the name escapes me at the moment, uh, like or Lomai, I think it's Lomai, Um, that he killed it. And there's going to be a trial for the killing of the rabbit. And we find out that there's no killing on the island which is interesting because it's the denial of the, of the nature of these animals, which sets up the whole, basically the whole end of the film is how can you, you know, can you suppress an animal nature, even if you're a human? (laughs) And so
1: a couple of things that come to mind that could have been articulated better in this, this being the overarching theme of the movie or the core question of the movie, there are a lot of things where, in the rewriting process this movie seems to fumble those themes where it's like i, I think it could have probably been a lot better explained why uh, the moreau character thinks that mixing human like what 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 it, it seems more like he's trying to get human qualities into animals mm-hmm. as opposed to vice versa because of course i don't know why you would look at animals that instinctively act on their base, their base natures and say, that's the thing that I want to combine with humanity to make Mm. something completely peaceful. That doesn't necessarily make any sense. And then also you wonder, um, even though he freaks out at the table, it doesn't seem to drive much of a stake in the relationship between Moreau and his lead scientist that his lead scientist is willing to kill animals Mm. and eat animals, which is interesting.
0: Yeah, what exactly is the quality he's looking to pull out of animals? Like that's that's a good question. Like what I mean yeah, like what would it be that you look at an animal and say that's what a human because he's trying to create the pinnacle of humanity, what is the element you need? And I can't think of anything inside of an animal that would be the quality you'd want to in- introduce.
1: I, I think the the most sensible way that you would have pitched it is that he loves, he just loves animals, so he wants animals to be more like humans as opposed to vice versa. Mm. Um, that would make more sense to me because then it's like, then it makes sense that he's fighting, that he's trying to uh, get rid of the animal nature and put in human nature, which has self-control, mm-hmm. or one form of
0: self-control. Hmm. Yeah, that really screwed it up, huh? <laughs> <laughs> Well, after the meal, Douglas tries to escape by boat, but he's surrounded by the creatures and I used to help him again. I have to say so they run along the, all of the island essentially at this point. How long was this chase in real time because it goes from nighttime to broad daylight by the time they're done chasing them. It and he's been there all day at that point. So is he up like 24 hours just running? How is he surviving this? I don't know. And my my I like the
1: The scene where he tries to get on the boat is also very funny to me. I mean, I think we we skipped over a scene, which is the trial, but the scene where he tries to escape on the boat before we go back to that is very funny to me because it feels like such a, you know, the screenwriters had a dead end, which is just like, he should try to escape. Something stops him. And then so he gets on the boat and there's all these weird hybrid rat creatures Mm. and then he just runs away. And that's the end of the scene. There's no real follow up to that. You never see the rat creatures again, as far as I can remember. So it's like "Ah, it's a quick fix. I suppose that makes sense.
0: Yeah, I mean, he does this chase and he actually uh, sees Loma running around in the forest. This was interesting because this is one of the this is the first digital character that was created by digital domain in the scene, the first ever fully digital. Uh, I mean, they would go on to be one of the top FX shops in the industry. I mean, they did Titanic, X-Men, Avengers. I mean, if there's a superhero film, they've worked on it for sure. And this is where it started. It's pretty good for the start. I mean, you know, yeah, it's obvious that it's it's not completely part of the background of the scene but it's it's a darn good motion for a, a first-time digital character
1: certainly they were this is one of those ones where it feels like they were intelligently conscious of like how to help hide the scenes and uh like make the make it look effective without putting the uh, the visual effect front and center in a way that it couldn't handle mm. There was yeah, a lot they, of they nice, definitely
0: camouflaged it. Good good
1: planning went into the way it blends with because there is a guy in full makeup at some points. So
0: mm-hmm. yeah, it's a really nice job. And it's followed up since we, you know, now we see Lome. The trial is actually the next scene um after this. And during the trial, one of the sons of Brando kills Lome. Mm-hmm. And now I was like, wait, what? You you are allowed to kill? <laughs> if if it's what are the rules here? I'm losing track of what the rules are. Well, they do
1: they do freak out about it. I just think that that moment could have been built up in a way that made that that fit the scene more, where it was, I suppose, more unexpected. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the 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 way the scene plays out is kind of weird. Certainly, yeah. it should be a big important moment that he decides to kill him, and then that should call into question the whole experiment. But it just doesn't play quite the way that it. Ought to i think
0: no and and it, they after that they burn his body and really it becomes like that killing is just a meth- a way to get to the point where they find out about the implant
1: mm-hmm. because
0: at this point hyena who's one of the creatures goes into lome's bones which are in the incinerator now and finds this implant which is what allows the father it allows uh moreau to control all these creatures because he has an implant that gives them pain yeah, he and- has a
1: little. He has a little thing around his neck that it has just like a. It, it basically looks like the keypad of a telephone, um, <laughs> yep. and um, if he want, if, if they're not responding to something that he's demanding, then he can press a button, and um, they, it has an effect on them. It's like a like a dog whistle sort of, and um, it, it incapacitates them until he stops pressing the
0: button. Yeah. So when loma, loma uh, Loma's implant is found by the hyena. He didn't. This is really creepy. This is, you know, again, the body horror kind of thing that we get out of this film where it's it's very creepy. He reaches into his own body, he digs into his own flesh and mm-hmm. removes his own implant mm-hmm. and realizes, oh, he's now free. Mm-hmm. And this is when everything changes in this film, because now the animals are dangerous. Up until that point, they are just pathetic creatures that the father can control with his magic garage door opener before that and at this point now he knows what he can do and that's really bad Mm -hmm. (laughs) and this is where everything will go fast forward essentially now because in the next scene Montgomery is shown drugging the animals because he does this on a regular basis because he has to give them drugs to keep them from regressing into animals Mm -hmm. which you know doesn't say much for Moreau's experiment you know, like if you need constant drugs to keep his body from their bodies from becoming animals again, what's the point of this?
1: I mean, that that, that fits into the, you know, if you, if, if I was trying to imagine what Stanley's original vision for the movie would be, I mean, I would say that um, religion to essentially brainwash them and then drugs to keep them in line. Mm-hmm. I can see the faint bones of sort of a criticized criticism of, uh, human society in the way that they're treating the animals but that doesn't uh, not necessarily one that comes through in the finished product but that I was just thinking about how those two elements could fit together
0: yeah there's a lot of interesting ideas just floating around in the film that never really worked their way out of the film um, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate because like it could be a very quality social commentary in this film that I, I think is a missed opportunity mm-hmm. well as he's giving them the drugs <laughs> he tries to get hyena to get his drugs. And Hyena shows him that he doesn't need, you know, he doesn't need him. He won't be able to control him with the the magic garage door opener. So he says, you know, I'm, you know, I'm out of (laughs) here. And now it's, now it's on because if he can do it, then who else can do it? And now you see the creature starting to regress a bit.
1: Yeah. The creatures, apparently there's some, like, it's weird because it's like, this is supposed to be an animal hybrid society where there is no violence except um, there's this little bit where it's like uh, the the one son who has the tuxedo on is like, is there going to be a hunt? Like this is a thing that they do often, and it's yeah. like that doesn't make any sense. But uh, Val Kilmer is like, yeah, there's going to be a hunt. So uh, a bunch of the animal creatures are given the tools
0: to go try and hunt down the hyena one. That is a very good point. He does yeah. act like this is something that we do, and <laughs> <laughs> and. So again, yeah, where did this happen before? Who were (laughs) they hunting? (laughs) Good, good point. Well, while this is all happening, AISA goes to her father because she is regressing. And this it's a nice little father-daughter moment. It's actually kind of nice between Perusa Balk and Marlon Brando. And you can see where why Perusa Balk wants to work with Brando. And you can see why Brando, you know, he's kind of like this old grandpa kind of character. However, There is another character in this scene that needs to be addressed, and that's his ice bucket hat. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. (laughs) So, not only does he have this white stuff and his just wraps that he's wearing, he has an ice bucket on his head now. (laughs) And Aisa has to (laughs) fill.
1: Yeah, it's like wrapped in a hat, basically. Yes. That so you can't really see the ice bucket, but it gets filled with ice in the middle of the scene. So you yeah. know that it is an ice bucket.
0: Yeah. Cause apparently in the film, uh, um Moreau has a real issue with the heat. He mentions often, Oh, it's too hot. It's too hot. And, and so they pour ice into this bucket on his head to keep him cool. However, apparently this was also Brando's request because he was hot and he wanted buckets of ice on his head. I read an article that said that, um, he actually he even
1: he even came up with a justification to try and fool Frankenheimer, which is that um, is he, had a, he had a dolphin's blowhole <laughs> added to his head and it needed to be cooled. That was that was his pitch. But he did he did admit in, in some interview somewhere that he was just hot and bored and he thought it would be funny. <laughs> so he's like amusing himself with his ice bucket hat.
0: I mean all the power to him. Why not? It doesn't hurt anybody. I mean, it's just this goofy little detail, but I love it so much that Furzabalk is standing here pouring ice onto his head in the middle of the scene. It's just ridiculous. And it speaks so much to what's going on in this film that no, it does, has nothing to do with anything, but I love it that it's in this film.
1: I will also say that uh, as someone who does not appreciate the heat an Ice Bucket Cat, <laughs> seems like a pretty good invention.
0: I'm willing to try it. <laughs> <laughs> After this, Hannah, who has been now freed from the pain, breaks into Moreau's place. This is, you know, the movie is moving so fast at this point. Things mm-hmm. are just piling up as far as action goes. But we have this really weird, quiet, odd scene here because Moreau meets them like they're house guests. Mm-hmm. He has a plate of cookies and a, gla- and a glass of milk. And he's like, hey, I'm going to play some music for you guys. And he sits down at the piano. I feel like the
1: intended... The intended dynamic of the scene is that they're testing him to see like, how he's going to respond if they assert themselves a little bit. Um, it doesn't necessarily play out like that, but I can feel the idea of the scene being that sort of dynamic where they're checking, they, they want to test him to
0: see how he reacts. Yeah, and I, I'm thinking he's trying to soothe the savage beast with some music, uh, mm-hmm. which doesn't work, <laughs> because uh, Hyena asks, what am I? which is a, a very threatening statement when it gets you know, spoken through giant fangs in your face like that. And then when Majel brings Moreau the pain device and he tries to hit it and nothing happens, the uh, hyena says, if there is no pain, is there no law? Hmm. Which is quite I, great. I love that. I mean, I think that's great. That's a great line right there. And it ties into the whole idea of religion controlling them. But, you know, because you think of the idea of in a, in a Christian religion that the pain will await you in the afterlife. If you are not good on earth, Mm -hmm. if you remove the pain in the afterlife, is there a reason to behave yourself Mm -hmm. on earth? Why be godly if there is no God afterwards? Mm -hmm. Uh, it, It frustrates me that there is really a great theme through the, through the background of this film of big ideas that were lost in the end uh, to some weirdness and just action. And I think, I wonder as much as we now know, or at least we believe we know about Richard Stanley, it would have been interesting to see if he would have done something with those things.
1: Uh, All I know is that in this scene in in particular, I really thought like, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind for me is the Planet of the Apes movies. That would Mm -hmm. be a good one where it's about the difference between animal and human society and like, um, the animals have a perspective on the way humans behave that we don't. And um, it really felt like, oh, I can see how this movie would work if the hybrid creatures and their society were better developed. If the movie Mm -hmm. had more time for them before that point. So you understood more of, the ways that they were being kept in line i mean you get a, you get little bits of it but it feels like the movie is racing toward action and not necessarily racing toward substance so you mm. those those elements are there but they could be developed a lot better so in that scene i really felt like this would be a great scene in a movie that had more time to tell you more about the hybrid creatures and like what they're
0: up against mm, absolutely and since now they know that they're in charge because there is no pain and there is no law, they kill mm-hmm. Moreau in a mm-hmm. violent orgy of eating. <laughs> they tear him apart, mm-hmm. and Thula sees this and he grabs his gun. And you know he knows he's in it deep now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, not nothing good is coming of what's happening here now on this island. Mm-hmm. And then we get the next scene where <laughs> Kilmer acts as Brando. <laughs> what a yeah. moment! what a moment this this is actually the second time in this series that we've seen Kilmer portraying Brando he did it in Twixt with Coppola um, Mm. during that film but man he is just all going for it in this scene and and I have to wonder why what is the point of him acting like this i just thought my my first thought
1: and my main thought is like you got to be really brave to do your brando impression <laughs> in a movie that had brando in it <laughs> you, know, I mean, you got to have a real confidence in your and he's good he, it's a good it's a good imitation of him it seems yes. especially strange to know to watch it knowing that they did not necessarily get along great during the no. movie and i read <laughs> uh, even though the, even despite that i read trivia that said uh kilmer asked for permission before doing it so Brando yes. must, have, must have granted it uh but he really like you said not only does he go all out in terms of really doing the bit and doing it for a long time he does it in the world of the movie too by putting the white makeup on and the sarong and really looking exactly like brando did before when his character was around
0: he even tucks a pillow under his shirt to yeah like stuff himself and as he walks away it just drops out of his shirt and it's just like just this defeat that's like the ultimate defeat it's like i'm done and the pillow falls out of his shirt
1: <laughs> it's very strange because it's like uh, one thing that would probably help this enliven this movie a little bit would be a real sense of humor. And you watch these scenes, and the impression is amusing. But you, you I, I watch it, and I don't know, does the movie want like do the filmmakers want me to laugh at this? Is like, is this supposed to be funny? I can't tell. It's it's amusing, but it's like it doesn't necessarily
0: feel like it's totally amusing on purpose. Yeah, there are moments between Montgomery and and Douglas that have some humor to them, but they're so like slight that, you know, it yeah. doesn't, you know, you think it might be a little bigger if you have somebody like Kilmer just, you know, being himself. And essentially it does, you mm-hmm. know, being that, that slick guy who has, who's just charming as all get out. Well, unfortunately for them, for Kilmer and for Douglas, um, I'm going to keep using their names interchangeably as <laughs> <Azazella, laughs> one of the sons is now joined forces with Hyena and they burn the boat. So there's no way off the Island now at this point uh (laughs) we go back to he he he, he comes upon hyena burning
1: preparing to burn the boat Mm -hmm. and then uh hi i think basically hyena is a little power drunk so Mm -hmm. he might as well he he believes that he's going to kill azazello but then azazello promises him the like azazello has a, a real gun and he says uh, I know where you can get more guns. Uh, I forget mm-hmm. what the term that he uses, but he has a primitive term for the guns, like fire. Fire relic- or something like that. Yeah, something like that. So uh, ultimately, he, he bargains with uh, Hyena, like, you take my implant out and I'll show you where the guns are.
0: Mm, yeah. You know, Zello is essentially part of the ruling class of this island. So that whatever alliance they can have together is always going to be tenuous because they're coming at this from two different angles. And Hyena is... The f- more fully pri- primal character, and mm-hmm. so while well, whereas uh, Azazello is using some of that human instinct to plot, he's not, you know hyena is acting on be- instinct. Azazello is trying to create a situation that works for him, and so I don't think you know <laughs> they both think that they're going to get something out of it. Uh, even though probably hyena isn't thinking that far ahead, he's just like I need what I want and I'm going to take get it. Whereas Azazello thinks I can control hyena because I'm of a higher class. And we all see how that ends up in the end. <laughs>
1: another another relevant thing that happens in the scene where uh, Kilmer is uh, pretending to be Brando. Uh, this was a little... I was a little vague on this. I didn't actually go back to try and figure it out. Um, but uh, Sulis is, is desperate to find a serum. I don't really know which serum he's looking for, but Kilmer has, at that point, destroyed all of it, which yes. is, I, I, I mean it doesn't quite make sense because it's like he says he's giving them the drugs to suppress the animal instinct Mm -hmm. i mean is that maybe that's what uh thulis is looking for um yeah i think to help aisa more than anything oh to help aisa right okay so that sort of makes sense but yeah kilmer says he's destroyed all of it and um then there's the next scene
0: (laughs) so uh Douglas finds out that he was being experimented on. He finds a whole bunch of vials of his, you know, DNA and, and blood and everything like that inside the lab. And Aisa finds him and then everything goes to hell. Mm-hmm.
1: Kilmer in full Brando mode. He descends like this, is this whole temple. That's where we first meet Ron Perlman's character preaching. Yes. And so there's an elevator that goes down. So Kilmer comes down in the elevator and he's throwing the, he, <laughs> Yeah, apparently he hasn't destroyed all the drugs because I believe that's what he's handing out. Yes, he has, yep. he has a whole box full of them, and he's just handing them to all the um, creatures. Mm-hmm. And uh, at that point, hyena shows up, and um, uh, well, Azazello does the killing blow first. Yes. because Azazello has the one gun. He shows up and murders Val, and blows then, him away. Just yeah, you know, hardcore. <laughs> and then he he drops the gun, and uh, hyena picks it up, and hyena. Uh, add some more bullets to
0: his already dead corpse. Yes. Oh, it's so rough. I mean, <laughs> it's always surprising me when I do this show. I, I, I'm shocked when Kilmer gets killed in the movie. <laughs> Even though, like, I've seen it now several times, it's still shocking to me when he gets killed. I always feel like he needs to make it to the end, if only because of heat. <laughs> because, you know, if he could survive heat, then he should survive all this other stuff. <laughs> As is Threatens Aisa, He tells that she's the only one that he hasn't hurt. That uh, the father hadn't hurt uh, because she is so pretty. Mm-hmm. And is he threatening to have to to like damage her or
1: ha- rape her? I don't know that I got that impression. I think I just got the impression that um, that it's a it's a little more of the race thing that you mentioned before that just isn't developed properly, mm. where he. He, he actually comes to the conclusion like he he actually sees it himself like he valued you more because you look normal and he's like upset about that. Um, that was then, that was that was my, that was my gist uh, when I was watching the scene. But she hangs herself. No, he, he actually does it. He he wraps the rope around her and pushes her off the balcony. See, I thought she jumped. No, no, no. He. he I he knew stopped.
0: he wrapped it around her, but I thought she jumped to get away from him.
1: That wasn't I mean maybe maybe that wasn't my impression. I thought he was killing her because he you know she was father's favorite basically.
0: Mm. Uh, yeah, I, I was like, "Oh, okay. Uh but yeah, I think it works either way. Uh you know because he's very creepy at that point. The, man, and, the uh, main thing that
1: shocks me is like with all the studio notes, nobody said Aisa to, has to live. That seems like Yeah. like that, it's such a surprising thing to me that I mean maybe at that point they were just like just get it over with and finish the movie. We don't care. It's not going to be good. And
0: and that's really a a theme throughout the rest of the film because it really is just like, well, let's do that and do that and do that and do that and do that because so much happens rapid fire at this point because, you know, Azazello brings Douglas to Hyena and then Hyena blows away Azazello. mm -hmm. Why? Uh, My impression, so Thulis is
1: like, he he's being held at gunpoint by Hyena mm-hmm. and Thulis basically comes up with a way to like psych him out because it's like um, I forget what the thing was but it basically he was like all of these people have an equal claim to being the leader as you do so and he's like only one person can be a god and wouldn't you want to be that person because Azazel is like or, or the hyena is trying to bait him into saying he's the, he's the leader of the island and stuff like that. And he's like, oh, yeah, you could be leader of the island, assuming there's nobody left to challenge your power. So he basically psychs him out into shooting his second and third in command so that he's the only one left. And um, that, that's true. But he kills Azela the second he walks up with Douglas before well, Douglas that, can say a word. That part, I don't really have any explanation <laughs>
0: Yeah. I mean, I get it. Like, you know, maybe it's just a getting his, his just dessert for trying to control hyena and you can't control this force of nature yeah. um, and that it turns on him. I can buy that, but it really doesn't, the film doesn't explain that in any way. No, <laughs> there's a lot of things the film
1: doesn't explain.
0: So. This is true. <laughs> so like you said, uh, hyena tells, wants Douglas to tell him he's God. Um, and, and he, but he says like, you know, you are God, you know, you can take care of all this. And then Hyena uses the, the pain device on all his people and then shoots them all. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> you just wanted to get rid of all these characters, I guess? You're just you know, cleaning things up? Is that the point here? Sort of mad with power, I guess, you know? I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Um, ha- but then Douglas turns Hyena against his own men. And they, like you said, he shoots his second in command, shoots his third in command. And then they go nuts and start beating him to death.
1: Because well, there's two because because uh uh Moreau has two sons, one <laughs> and uh, one of them's Azazello, and he's the one in the tuxedo, and then he has another son who's in yeah. like a wait- waiter's coat, yeah. Maling okay, Maling, yeah. And Maling is like a little nicer and a little more sympathetic, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I yeah, think he's the religious one ultimately. Um, he he sort of comes to the rescue because there's like a big pile of gasoline or something nearby so he he takes the opportunity to throw a torch and um uh get one over on uh hyena cuz he mm-hmm. thinks he, clearly he thinks
0: hyena is mad with power yeah i just didn't understand why they were now beating hyena to death and then he just wanders into the fire and burns himself to death and there's no like there's no explanation as to what happened there oh, i think ultimately that's
1: supposed to be like a little hint of like humanity, where he's like he could just go crazy and go out in a blaze of glory, like where he forces them to kill him. But mm-hmm. he's spo- the idea is that he has enough self reflection to just let himself die instead, quietly, instead of because because mm-hmm. uh, has the gun and is pointed at him and he's ready to kill him,
0: but then he doesn't have to
1: because Hyena uh, kills himself. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean this film tries to clean up a lot in a very short period of time with no real logic to any of it. It just, it all just kind of happens. And, and you're supposed to accept it because then Douglas is going to leave. He built a little raft and he's going to go back, go home and he's going to bring help for the creatures on the Island. At which point they, you know, uh, Ron Perlman says no more scientists. We okay. have to be who we are. And so he's like, okay, I'll just leave you here. And then we get the most heavy handed bit of connection to society in this ending part where we get all this footage of violence and hatred uh, from, from archival or stock footage. And the narration by Thulis says that, you know, society is made up of animals and they have animal behavior and they will turn on each other and kill each other. And it's like, yeah, you you hinted at stuff like this throughout the way, but you really can't end with this. I'm sorry, you didn't earn this kind of ending on this film.
1: The real island of Dr. Moore was the friends we made along the way.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm sorry, you know, you cannot act like you are trying to tell some sort of high moral story here after you just did like 15 minutes of people just shooting each other for no reason.
1: Yeah, uh, <laughs> it, it is funny. I said this before we started and I said this uh, elsewhere um, after I watched the movie, but it's just really surprising to me, you know, for a movie that is about an Island full of animal human hybrids and there's like gunfights and explosions and uh, romance and all this stuff. It's just a surprisingly boring movie. Uh, I found it, uh, even though there's all this great behind the scenes stuff that you can infer into the movie. And even though the movie actually for being like a notorious disaster or a notorious problem project. um, It's fairly coherent. Mm -hmm. Um, The acting is pretty good. The directing seems fine. It doesn't feel like it was patched together in post-production. So all things considered, it turned out pretty well, but it is really uh, not that
0: engaging, ultimately. (laughs) No, it's a surprisingly slow film, especially when you consider the greatest thing it has going for it. It's about a 90-minute film. Yeah. And... How do you have a 90 minute film and still feel like there's not a lot going on? (laughs) Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that's really uh, typical of a lot of these blockbusters that go bad. They just, they put a lot of stuff into it and they just feel like stuff is going to save the day. But if you don't really think about how that stuff goes together or how that adds up into some sort of like arcs or something engaging for the viewer, then it's just not gonna work.
0: Very disappointing. And I guess we'll see what happens in the future because uh they're actually working on a TV series of Moreau now with a female Dr. Moreau. So, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe they can do a better job with it this time around. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> so now that we've had our say, let's hear from the man himself. It's time for a reading from the book of Val. So our reading today comes from Val Kilmer's memoir. I'm your Huckleberry. Naturally, this insane film gets a chapter all to itself, thanks to all the background stuff. And I have to say, it might be the best chapter in the whole book. And in this passage, he talks about coaxing a depressed Brando into performing. Before I read that, I just should note that, like you said, these two were not friends on the film. (laughs) There were reports that neither would leave their trailer until the other one would leave their trailer. So big egos, big clashing. But according to Kilmer, he uh, was a friend in some way to to Marlon Brando. (laughs) Marlon was always upbeat on set. But at night, he mourned his life's private tragedies in silence. Sometimes he invited me to sit beside him. He'd ask me to read him a poem. It might be Yeats or Walt Whitman or a Shakespeare sonnet. It didn't matter. He just wanted to hear the sound of beautiful language. Sometimes he would weep, but never for long. Eventually, he'd ask me to tell the director that he was ready. Courageously, he completed the film. John Frankenheimer went on to blame me publicly for ruining the movie. (laughs) I always thought it was an odd thing to try to do blame me for his failure to make an entertaining film because my character dies halfway through it. And the last half of the film sucks as bad as the first. So how do you work that out? I don't blame John for its failure, but he also could have been its savior. Thanks be to Val. Yeah. (laughs) Doesn't pull any punches on the late John Frankenheimer.
1: He does touch on something that we didn't mention previously. Um, The big thing. So like in pre-production, as I mentioned, um, Stanley had the meeting with Brando and Brando backed him because uh, Brando liked Stanley personally. Mm -hmm. And then there was this, uh, you know, he got to Australia and uh, there were weather problems and all these other things that sort of like, and he didn't like meeting with studio executives. So that was really making the new line people nervous that he wouldn't, he wouldn't show up for Mm -hmm. meetings and stuff. And, um, he, one of the things that he was banking on was having Brando to back him, because obviously, studio's not going to say no to Brando. If yeah. Brando likes the guy, then then they're going to listen to Brando. But uh, Brando's one of Brando's daughters, I believe, committed suicide. Yes, and um, so Brando went into you know sort of you know he was mourning and he went into reclusion and um, he wasn't there to protect Stanley when Stanley was ultimately fired. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't think he was around, and then. um I read a little tidbit that said both, both Brando and Kilmer reportedly apologized to Stanley when he unmasked himself at the rap party. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but that was, that was the story that I read.
0: Yeah. Same here. I mean, I think that came from Stanley, so I'm not sure if I believe it or not. Um, uh, but you know, Hey, um, he doesn't mention him negatively in the book. So it's very yeah. possible. It's true. I did like on the DVD, uh, There's interviews, uh, there's actually a featurette about uh, the making of the film, and it's mostly Kilmer interviews, which is odd for most of these things. You don't get a lot of Kilmer in these featurettes. And he had the line, I expected the unexpected, and I was satisfied in the extreme. (laughs) So (laughs) I thought that was entertaining from him. So now that we've heard from him, let's hear from some others. Come children, let's explore the Kills and Valleys. So Kills and Valleys, the best and worst reviews of this film. On Rotten Tomatoes, The Island of Dr. Moreau is rocking a 24% fresh rating, which seems wholly appropriate. David Anson of Newsweek was something of a fan of the film. Uh, This update of H.G. Wells' 100-year-old novel is, until it collapses in the last 30 minutes, giddily entertaining, a tropical horror potboiler with a wry sense of its own absurdity. At 90 minutes, it has the spotty feel of a movie that's missing crucial sequences. Let's face it, this is one nutty movie. It's not exactly good, but I sure had a good time. I mean, I agree, it collapses in the last 30 minutes. It's The last 30 minutes are terrible of this film, just like Val Kilmer said. But giddily entertaining? I don't believe that at all. Yeah, I don't know. I don't, and I don't know about
1: Rye's sense of its own um, absurdity, either.
0: Yeah, no. David Anson was uh, watching a different film, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Nathan Raven uh, sees the good and the bad in the film, though a tonal and thematic mess Dr. Moreau is rife with indelible moments. That's absolutely true. There are so many moments you will never forget in this film. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of them belong to Kilmer. That I don't know if I believe, but, you know, hey, why not? I like him. Uh, I quite enjoyed the oddball humor and stoned rhythms of Kilmer's performance and the old school artistry of the character design and makeup. I mean, I do enjoy Kilmer's performance in this film because it's pure Kilmer. It's it's him being a lunatic. (laughs) I'll
1: never forget his brando.
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, past Kilmer cast guest Jason Bailey's review was less kind. Uh, credit where due, a movie like Doctor Mur- Island of Dr. Moreau is risky as hell. And as we see, it's very easy for a story with this many ridiculous elements to fall flat on its face. It requires a filmmaker willing to go all the way with it. And that's where this viewer ended up after visiting both Dr. Moreau and the documentary Inspired, with the realization that this could never land as a summer studio project in the hired hand at helm. Yeah, I, I think Frankenheimer only had so much to say about this film. You know, um, he got it over the finish line, essentially. I think he was working mostly with Stanley's ideas and didn't know what to do with a lot of them, uh, except for to put more action into it.
1: I also heard that um, he, he successfully strong on the studio into paying him a lot of money to come and save their ass, and he even got three more movies out of it. I don't know if they were actually made or not, but that was the deal that he made at the time.
0: Pretty sweet deal, I had to say. <laughs> uh, and although he didn't review the film in print, in a retrospective on Brando, Roger Ebert said that Dr. Moreau is his worst film. I would argue that it's probably Christopher Columbus The Discovery, which is a really terrible film. Um, I mean, yes, this is not the greatest Brando performance, but this film overall is not nearly as bad as Christopher Columbus. I mean,
1: I would certainly say that Brando is fine in it. Like, he's yeah. fine. In- uh, the movie is not great but i don't think that there's anything wrong with brando's acting
0: not really no he's over the top and i i mean that's what this needed was somebody <laughs> to be weird uh, over on amazon the unwashed masses have left us 1365 reviews as of this recording and of those reviews 62 percent are five stars can you believe that <laughs> <laughs> it's amazon oh. <laughs> Uh, Dr. Murrow's Island is one of the best pictures I can possibly think of for a movie because of the scientific, technical, ingenuity, DNA, human, DNA mixed with animals, humans. It is a very good movie. (laughs) (laughs) That's when we can put it right on the box, just unedited. No editing. No notes. It's all good. (laughs) Uh, Perhaps they wear better off on all fours anyways. Some of the animals are evil. Some of the animals are religious. Some of the animals seem to be in cages. There's a midget. Val Kilmer gives the animals drugs. Someone gave a steroid animal a gun and it shot a few people and killed his dad. And then he jumped into a fire and he wasn't aware of what he was doing because he was stupid. So he yelled, why, why? And the animals sent the main character back to tell his story, but that's not the story. Yeah. That's a five-star review. <laughs> you really can't trust Amazon. <laughs> Great home entertainment, great cinematography, landscapes, wildlife. The story is believable. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then this one just confused me. It's not particularly good, but it's very good. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like uh, so bad it's good to kind of... You know, I guess. It's, maybe it was lost in translation somewhere. <laughs> yeah, uh, A shockingly low 4% of the reviews were one star. And even at that, most of them were just complaints about the presentation of the version the person wa- received or watched. Um, mm-hmm. There were a few, though, that touched on the, on the film itself. I use this movie for science, also for scientific sciences and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always Sounds doing good. scientific sciences. <laughs> Sounds like a fan
1: of Lost Skeleton of Cadavra.
0: Seriously. <laughs> a terrible pretentious script in Frankenheimer's direction was strongly impacted by his battles with alcohol. A bit of slander there. I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, that said, there are some excellent aspects to this disaster. Uh, the animal makeups and the sound editing are first rate. Too bad this film is so lousy. Seeing such a talented cast wasted is sad, and I lost a great deal of respect for Brando based on how he composed himself. If you're not going to give it your best, why bother? I mean, I guess. I mean, it seemed like everybody was trying. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's as good as Brando could do at the time, I think. Yeah. I hate Marlon Brando and Val Kilmer for their parts in defiling the work of H.G. Wells and for taking what would have been a great movie and destroying it. Their egos destroyed this movie. It's disgusting. Hmm. I mean, yeah, I know their egos were definitely a problem in the background, um, but I don't know how much damage they really did to the movie. (laughs) I think the movie was going to be what it was in the end, whether they were egomaniacs or not. Many old films are rotting and technicians are restoring them back to their original luster. This is one film that they should let evaporate in the archives. Save your money and buy the previously mentioned versions far outclassing this monumental epic appropriately about man's arrogance while monkeying with mother nature. The movie is a true mutation and experiment gone far, far wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we have a decision to make with or without Val. Does Val Kilmer make or break this film? So before we go into that, I just wanted to mention a couple of uh, casting notes. So originally the role of Montgomery, which Kilmer played, was offered to Gary Oldman. And he had to turn it down because he went to rehab. And then, like you said, Bruce Willis was involved at one point, and James Wood, Woods was cast as Montgomery. And then he was dropped out when everything changed. So it was Oldman, and then Woods, and then Kilmer. So do you think Kilmer makes or breaks this film? I don't
1: know if Kilmer makes or breaks the film. I certainly think... He's interesting in it. Um, I would think the movie would be worse without him, but I, since the movie is not successful, I don't know that it would be significantly, it's just hard. It doesn't feel like his presence is relevant to the things that are wrong with the movie. That's the best way that I would put it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I mean, if you took him out of this, it would be far less entertaining uh, without him and that character. He definitely brings that energy. I mean, you take that Brando imitation out of this film and you lose a ton <laughs> out of this movie, even though it means nothing to the plot in the end, it's just a would, moment that you have to have.
1: As we talked about earlier, I would be more far more interested in the question of would the movie work if they switched Stulis and Kilmer back into their original roles? Yeah. Um, I would much rather see that than wonder about the movie without Val Kilmer.
0: Yeah, I agree. That'd be a very interesting uh, way to see this film. I'd love to see some alternate reality where we could see that film. That'd be awesome. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Well, now that we've covered today's film, I'd like to play a game, and it's called War of the Wells. So The Island of Dr. Murray was just one of 50 novels that uh, H.G. Wells wrote over the course of his life, and one of several that were adapted for the big screen. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give you a title and description of one of H.G. Wells' works, and you'll tell me if it was made into a feature film or never adapted. Okay. Okay. I'm not an H.G. Wells. I'm not an H.G. Wells expert, so we'll see how well I do. <laughs> That's what makes it interesting. <laughs> you got to use some guesses here. So um, the first one's an easy one: "The War of the Worlds," which tells the story of the Earth being invaded by aliens from Mars.
1: Yes, that was adapted into at least two different feature films. But Absolutely. Powell and uh, Steven Spielberg. Yep,
0: 1953, it was the first one and then 2005 the second one. Second one, second film. Second story, I should say. The Dream. A man from a utopia future dreams the entire life of an Englishman from the Victorian and Edwardian eras named Harry Mortimer Smith.
1: Hmm. That sounds vaguely familiar, but I do not know. I'm going to say
0: No. You are correct. It was not adapted into a film. Sounds like total recall. Kinda, yeah. (laughs) Next one is Mr. Britling Sees It Through. Mr. Britling is a renowned writer, profoundly incompatible with Edith, whom he has married after the death of his first wife, Mary, to whom he still has an emotional attachment.
1: Hmm. That sounds like the plot of a lot of uh, romantic comedies. I don't think, I don't, when I watched a, a guy thing, I don't
0: remember them crediting H.G. Wells. <laughs> so I'm going to say no. And you would be correct. It has not been adapted, at least not officially. <laughs> another, another possible inspiration on the heartbreak kid as well. Possible. <laughs> Next one is the shape of the world to come. Sometime in the future, man has set up colonies on the moon where earth, when earth becomes uninhabitable. A madman decides to destroy the moon colonies with his robot and automated ships, and only three people and their robot can stop him.
1: I have not seen it, but I believe that in the Criterion collection, The Shape of Things to Come is the name of the movie.
0: Well, this one is actually The Shape of the World to Come, and it was from 1979 starring Jack Palance. Oh. There's apparently two similar titles.
1: <laughs> I could have sworn that sounded like the – because I remember looking up The Shape of Things to Come on criterion. And I thought that those had the same title, but maybe I'm just making that up.
0: (laughs) Well, either way, you got it right. (laughs) So good on you. So as I was editing this episode uh, and I heard Tyler's answer about this, it sounded like he really knew what he's talking about, which I trust Tyler. He would know what he's talking about. And I checked, and there is a criterion edition of a film called things to come, which is based on the HG Wells book, the shape of the world to come. Uh just didn't come from my research because the title is different than the actual novel. Uh so Tyler was correct on both counts. He it was a movie, and it also was a different movie than the one with Jack Palin. So uh bonus points. Next one is the Food of the Gods. A group of friends travel to a remote Canadian island to hunt, only to be attacked by giant killer animals which have populated the place. Um
1: That feels like one that, that feels a little primed to be a movie.
0: So I'm just going to guess yes. You would be? Correct. In 1976, it was made into a film. And I believe a couple other things at the Times as well, but that was the the main one. Doing well. When the Sleeper Wakes, about a man who sleeps for 203 years, waking up in a completely transformed London in which he has become the richest man in the world. Hmm. I'm going to guess, yes. Sorry, no, that one has not been adapted yet. It does have similarities to Sleeper by Woody Allen, Mm -hmm. uh, but not really an adaptation of it. Just similarities. Next one, half a sixpence. Arthur Kipps, an orphan, apprentice to a tyrannical owner of a mercantile, has a sudden abrupt change of life when his wealthy grandfather dies and leaves him a pile of money.
1: I'm going to say,
0: I'm going to say yes. You are? Correct. 1967. This would be the last film by George Signey, who directed Viva Las Vegas with Elvis Presley and Bye Bye Birdie. Next one is The Holy Terror. Rudolph Whitlow is born with such an aggressive temperament that he's referred to as the Holy Terror, and eventually gets involved in socialist activism and a group strategizing for world revolution.
1: I I feel like I've heard the title of The Holy Terror as a movie, so I'm going to say yes to that one.
0: Sorry, no, it's not adapted. There is a Batman story, Holy Terror, um, where he he grows up in the church and is a a vampire, I believe, Uh, but not this story. (laughs) Next up, The Passionate Friends. A woman meets a man whose love she has rejected for years. Very basic plot. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty basic. Uh, I'm going to say no. It has been adapted in 1949 by David Lean, really? who directed Dr. Shivago and Lawrence of Arabia. So he took that very generic plot and ended up making a movie out of it. <laughs> and then the last one, the croquet player. A croquet player hears the tale of a cursed town and wonders if its spirit-corrupting evil pervades the land, infesting the minds of those who called Cain's Smarsh home, or is it a paranoid fantasy generated by an even darker worldwide threat? That's a great plot. That just sounds that just sounds interesting. I want it to be a movie, so I'm going to say yes. Well, one day maybe you can make that movie, but it has not <laughs> been made into a film yet, so I'm sorry. <laughs> but you did a great job overall.
1: Mm-hmm pretty good for not doing anything about it, if she will you learn so
0: much in this show <laughs> you, didn't, you didn't you decided not to go with the invisible man that would be i me. left it out because it seemed a little too obvious after world the Worlds. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that's it for this episode of kilmercast i'd love to thank you tyler for joining me to talk about this truly wild film do you have anything you'd like to plug uh
1: not at the moment i still write for the dvd talk and that's about it and what's your social media handle
0: uh, it's uh at tyler gill foster that's just all one word on twitter cool on our next episode we're going to jump over to 2009 where we will talk about the indie horror film the thaw in the meanwhile please email any thoughts questions or comments to kilmercast at gmail.com and follow the show on twitter at kilmercast for myself and my guest tyler foster thank you for listening and remember to keep it kilmer <laughs>